Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In today's episode, we speak with Lisa Zola Greer, an entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist who has managed her family's giving for the last decade. She's served on dozens of boards and commissions, including the Beverly Hills Cultural Heritage Commission, the International Board of the New Israel Fund, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and the Los Angeles District Attorney Crime Prevention Foundation. In her new book, Philanthropy Revolution, she describes how she and her husband found themselves in the 1% virtually overnight, and how their efforts to give generously to charity were often thwarted by the seemingly inflexible processes and scripts of fundraisers, who suddenly saw them as piggy banks. Now, the self-described fixer is working to reverse the decline in the number of Americans who give to charity by showing how nonprofits can establish and maintain truly collaborative and effective relationships. In my family, we were kind of a typical middle-class family. I saw giving wasn't, um, I don't want to say it wasn't part of our family. Um, my, my, cause, cause we would do, my mom was Girl Scout, Girl Scout leader or PTA president or things like that but it was a very local kind of thing. And I remember when I was, um, and, and, and it sounds really strange, but my parents, and this was another time period, right? Um, but my parents didn't even let me listen to the radio until I was like in sixth grade. So, um, so there was, and also there was the end of Vietnam stuff going on and stuff on TV was really scary. And so I wasn't allowed to watch that. And, and so um, it was really kind of, you know, what I learned in school and that kind of thing. And of course the word, Philanthropy would would have never come up then. Um, so I, um, but I knew that I knew that uh, you know my my father had been a, his father had been a member of B'nai B'rith, and I saw signs somewhere, and I kind of knew that they did some good stuff. But that's kind of all I knew. And then when I was about, uh, I, I guess when I was about sixth grade, I started hearing about um, you, you know the way they used to say the starving children in Africa and you know things like that in India, and mm-hmm. so. Somehow I found out about CARE, which I think is still a big organization. And I remember that I uh, tried to get involved there. I mean, as much as you can be involved when you're like 14. But um, but and I, I did something like you could I think you could have pen pals on CARE, something like that. So so I did that. But again, philanthropy was not philanthropy was was, you know, Carnegie's and Rockefeller's. It wasn't something that we would even we wouldn't even use that word in the house. In fact, I didn't know what a trust was till we had uh, the IPO was about to happen. I, I really, all I knew about trusts were, were that um, uh, that there there were these people called literally. This is all I knew about trusts was that there are people called trusts. And I have an MBA, and I you know took care of all these kids and stuff. But but you know if you don't have a lot of money, you don't really have a trust usually. So you don't you don't think about that. And the only thing I knew about trusts is that there were a lot of these people called trust fund kids, and they weren't very nice. And that's all I knew. <laughs> Well, okay. Where is all this taking place? Uh, where, where were you born and raised? In Los Angeles, yeah, in Los okay. Angeles, in the San Fernando Valley, growing up, and and then uh, and then when I went to college, um, I uh, uh, it still was um, it was all very kind of you know school related and that kind of thing. And when I went to college, I uh, was in a sorority, and as most sororities and fraternities have, we had a nonprofit that we were connected with. Mm-hmm. And this one calls was called the Amy Karen Foundation. Uh, which does something nice in Israel. I have no idea what it is. Actually, I, I kind of looked it up and I think it might exist or might have morphed into something else. Um, and so we were told to raise money for 
something good in Israel, which is about all we knew. And so, you know, we did like whatever bake sales or something for that. And then, uh, and again, as, as I had children in my mid twenties, I, uh, I would do things for the school. So, and then I would, and, and then it was interesting because I was, um, I was PTA president myself. I was, I was on something called the school site council, um, got involved in a lot of that stuff because I, maybe it's because my mom did it. I just thought it was the right thing to do. But then because I kind of was born with a business mind, which um, my father thought was very strange because girls weren't really supposed to have that then. He didn't quite understand that. But I would I would realize, well, wait, they're spending all this time on these bake sales when they could make so much money if they did you know this instead or that instead or they would do a penny drive or they would do whatever. And, and, and it was great. But I'm like, you guys, you're doing the same thing. You've been doing the same thing for 20, 30, 40 years. Maybe we should try and do it a different way. And they just didn't see it. And so I was always the person saying, you know, no, there's a better way. And and also when I was um, when I was in college, um, I was able to you know see other kinds of fundraising that was going on on campus. But, but that was really that was my experience. That was it. And again, the word philanthropy, just not a word that we used in the house. It wasn't a bad word. It just wasn't wasn't us. It was it was like saying, um, I don't know, you know, aliens on the moon or so. I, I just I, we just we just didn't didn't discuss that. And so it wasn't a concept. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a concept. It was something for other people. That's kind mm-hmm. of what it was. Volunteering. Um, I did a lot of volunteering and a lot in uh, in college. I was um, from my first day at, at UCLA. I joined a volunteer organization that raised. Um, we actually had money. We had an endowment to uh, subsidize tickets for kids in uh, for students in the school to be able to go to the uh, major performing arts uh, uh, performances that we had on campus. And so I was on that board for all the four years I was in college. And and that was all about um, finding ways to bring in other people who aren't typically able to access something, in this case, performing arts performances. Um, and because how important it was to kind of get more people involved, which as I'm talking to you now, that's kind of exactly what I'm doing right now, which is I'd never thought of that correlation. But but because I feel like this sort of elitist thing that that I always thought as, I guess, elitist, I just thought it was foreign. Uh, but once we had money and I realized that, that as, as I talk about in the book, that, that it took seven months for our, our hospital to take, accept $2 million from us is that because they, we weren't on the list. We weren't one of the regular suspects is what I call them. So, so it was really um, this idea of this, I, I don't know if they, and I think that's all through fundraising. I don't know if they think that people think that it's, it's elitist or not, but it is the way that it's done is that you go to the same people over and over again and that it's easier to go to the same people over and over again. And and you go and you look and see what, you know, uh, 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 whatever your wealth engine says, uh, these are the right people. You trust that because you're paying them for that software, that 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 program. And then you figure, OK, well, yes, now we go after those people. And there's not a sense of well, what about the people who aren't in the wealth engine? What about the people who who haven't been donors all their life? What about the people who just had an IPO and have a bunch of money? And, you know, how does that, I don't understand why, I, I don't understand why the industry, the sector doesn't spend more time. I do, I do sort of understand, but I don't, I, I know what they say, which I don't, I don't really like the answer, but I don't understand why when, I don't understand why there's a sense that there's limited um, 
a, a limited number of people that you can go after and you just go after them and make them and that they should give you more money every year. That is, seems to be a premise in the sector that, that here's the people, here's people with the money. And you, and I think that's based on a, a very old concept of old money versus new money. And uh, because I've, I've checked on this with uh, Beth Breeze, who's, who's written some wonderful books and, and talks about the history of philanthropy. And really these rules were all, were all started over a hundred years ago. She's actually tracked, traced them back. And I think that that old money, new money paradigm was new money was always sort of um, uh, a day class A was coming into my head. It was sort of like, ew, you know, those are the people who were, you know, the, the, the nouveau riche was, was it really, that was a, you know, pejorative term, right? And then the people with the old money were the ones who you're supposed to bow down to and you respect, and they're the ones at the museums and all. Well, first of all, that is elitist by almost by definition, but but that's changed now and it's completely different. The people who who get the respect and have a lot of the money are the people who you would have called nouveau riche, but people don't say that term anymore. But 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 those are the people who um uh, uh Esther Choi has who um teaches at Kellogg ha, uh, has, I, I don't know, she coined the term or she just uses it a lot as FGW, which is first generation wealthy. And right now, 60% of the donors uh, or wealthy people in the United States are first generation wealthy, which means by definition, they would have been called nouveau riche in the old, in the old uh, parlance. And so the, the idea though, that but, but, but the functionality that we use in the sector now is still focused on not those people, it's focused on the old money people and the old money people, yes, they're still gonna give money and yes, there's still a lot there, but I mean, witness everything you read in the newspaper or anything every single day and who's giving most of the money these days. It's it's just, it's it's that is a piece of the puzzle of the people with the older money, but to bow down to them and say, for example, oh, we don't want that 32 year old on our board. Someone literally said this to me last week because I always say, there's all these 20 year olds and 30 year olds and you guys are ignoring them. And someone said, you know, you're right, because if we have them on our board, then we can just make sure that, that that'll help us to get money from their parents. And I said, no, 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 no. These are these are people in their own right. So there's a there's a there's a mindset that hasn't caught up with the way that philanthropy and fundraising is taught. So there's a reality. I mean, the mindset, the mindset, I'm sorry, excuse me, the mindset is 100 years old. The mindset hasn't caught up with reality today. And Let me ask you about that mindset, because yeah. um, the position you're in now, you see with real clarity because now you're a donor. So I'm sure that as as a donor um, who is, you know, uh, this first generation wealth, I guess you're describing by Esther Choi's terms. Yeah, FGW. Um, but but before that, um, you were this person growing up where philanthropy wasn't a word that you used in the house, but you were already volunteering. It sounds like in some way or other, whether it was B'nai B'rith or in college with the sorority, whatever, it was already part of who you were. I'm curious if you can kind of peel back the layers, what your perception of philanthropy was at that point, even if it wasn't something you saw as your life. So did you also think, well, you know what, these these rich people are like this and and uh, and they're different from us. Did you have any of that kind of? Yeah, I, I did well? think they're different from us, but I um, I think I'm a glutton for punishment and I walk <laughs> into the storm, the front of the storm often. And uh, and so what I did is I kept joining. I kept trying to join boards uh, where where I was involved and I would say, uh, you know, I really want to be on this committee or I want to be on this board or whatever. And um, and I would say it 
seemed to me from somebody who didn't know any better that if you volunteer and you're really connected with an organization, they mm. would want you on their board. And as you know, that didn't happen because people said, because volunteers are put in a different box than the board members. And later on, when I was on a few boards, I, so I was on a board with the, uh, uh, the, the County of Los Angeles and, and it was a blue ribbon committee. And it was really because of, it wasn't because of money. It was because of background. And so I started getting on, on some of those kinds of things, but, but uh, the, the, it was, it was made very clear to me that volunteers and donors shouldn't mix. And so I always thought, so I literally remember myself going into talking to people at organizations that I was volunteering for saying, I've been a volunteer. I love volunteering. I'd like to get more involved. How would I get onto your board of directors? And I mm -hmm. have an MBA and I've worked in, co in corporate, the corporate world, whatever. And they just ignored me. I mean, it was literally looked at me like I was crazy. So that was really and I think that's still the same today. So much of this is perception and then breaking down these perceptions, which is why I'm asking a bit about even your own perceptions really early before this became the center of your life. And now you are able to teach others and write about it. I'm, I'm curious about this with with business and volunteerism, too. So uh, there are a lot of uh, folks in the private sector who also have this view of the nonprofit sector that's that's very much archetypal. You know, it's a uh, nonprofit means no profit is something I used to hear um, or uh, that nonprofit people. It's all about, um, uh, you know, just giving away your time and it's all about bleeding hearts, you know, kind of these negative perceptions. So I'm wondering, as, as you were coming up, you were, as you said, you had an MBA, you were in business. That's why you were doing all these these amazing things what your perception of the nonprofit sector was, were you also kind of gaining this insight or did you come to it kind of with an open mind? Because there seems yeah. to be a division between for-profit and nonprofit in this country as well. Yeah, I didn't have any, I, I did think, uh, you know, again, most of my life, I was not a person with, you know, these kinds of means and I, I wasn't involved in this. So it's only been 10 years, but mm -hmm. I, uh, I did not think that I, I was quite the opposite. I didn't think nonprofit people were kind of a, a lesser type of group or whatever. I did think that they probably made less money, but I didn't really get into that only because I would read that people would get angry when, when a, a salary report would come out of nonprofits and they would say, look how much person this, this money this person's making. And I thought, so they're, if they're doing a good job, why shouldn't they make that money? And so, so I really, my, um, my, my kind of ignorance, I guess, or lack of knowledge about the, the industry, um, meant that I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have any input uh, other than what I found myself. Like I wasn't around people bitching about, you know, nonprofit people or about volunteers. I, it just didn't happen. So, but I also thought that, um, so I had no, there were no negative preconceived notions about nonprofits. In fact, I actually felt like those were all the good people. That's what, you know, I, and I wanted to be part of more of that, but that, but that uh, there were, there were locked doors uh, where I wanted to get involved if I didn't have money that I had and, to be in, in my place. Yeah. And that's, and that's a, that's a great door to walk through for all of us. So can you describe a little bit about those locked doors that you were encountering? What specifically did people do or not do when you were just trying to be there and be helpful? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, some of it, <laughs> some of it was, was, was gender oriented, which I really wasn't aware of till I kind of looked back at it. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of it was, uh, you know, yes, there are some positions where you can, um, 
I guess I, I, what it all boils down to is it just seemed logical to me. So I just I just went on a path of logic. Like there's people in, and by the way, there was a little bit of guilt in here. So as I had more money than maybe people in because I had my own business when I was in my late twenties, and if I had I had more money than people my age, I would feel a little bit guilty about it. Like like I I I and and so the guilt made me want to give back. So one of the first organizations I was involved in, a political organization that a friend had invited me to, uh, they required you to give, I think, 5% of your income um, into back into the organization. It was political stuff. It wasn't nonprofit. It was political. And, uh, and, and I felt so much better that I was doing that. And I thought, oh my God, I want to do more. I have to do more. So I, I really did feel guilty. So that a lot of it came out of that. But the other part was, I, I actually believe that anybody, and this is just, I know this sounds really weird, but it's just what I thought. And my husband did too. We thought that if you have money, you automatically give. We didn't think that there was anybody that didn't. So when we first had money and we called our business manager and I said, can you just give me? Because there's not a, there's not a handbook of how to give. I, I mean, a lot of the stuff you have to figure out. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. In fact, I, we just talked to someone the other day saying that we really should create a glossary of terms. And I might put this in my next book because I didn't know that a development person or an advancement person meant they were the fundraiser. I didn't, how would I know that? I didn't know that if somebody, I didn't really understand how endowments work. I didn't know what a chair was. I didn't know that if somebody, if you make a commitment to somebody of a large amount of money that you can pay that over time. I didn't know that and that you should suggest it. And you know, the nonprofits aren't going to say, well, hey, you know, instead of giving it all to us now, why don't you do it over five years? They weren't going to say that to me. So I had to learn that on my own. I didn't know how to do the quid pro quo thing with somebody says, oh, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm giving, I'm, I'm sponsoring uh, you know, your charity event that you're involved in and therefore you do this for mine. I didn't know what amount that should be. I didn't know what's a big amount, what's a little amount, you know, what's, because if it's too little, then I'm going to look like a jerk. And if it's too much, I'm going to, it's going to look obnoxious. So I didn't know when, and this is also in the book, when I, I gave money to our kids' school and I thought about it and I thought, and again, this was not, I think, I don't know if people are just born with this. I, I don't know, but it, 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 as a, as a, um, a sentient being who is aware of the world around them, you just, I don't see how people cannot give. And when, when we first had money, I called my business manager and I said, can you just give me some of the information? She handles a lot of entertainment clients. And I said, how, what percentage of their income do most people give? And she said, oh, Lisa. And I said, what? And she said, most of them don't. And I said, what? I don't understand. I still don't understand that. I don't understand people who will go buy a Ferrari, but won't give money to something. I just don't, I still are, don't understand that. Are you finding that to be true though? I mean, that was one advisor at that time, but now you're doing these things. You're so yeah. involved. Uh, are, are you still running into a lot of kind of your peers professionally in terms of age and where you live who say, I don't do that? Yeah, I, I, I uh, yes. And I, it makes me very, very sad. Um, I, I think that I've kind of made my world encircle myself with people who are the type of person who wants to give because those are the kind of people I'd want to have dinner with, you know, or whatever, be on a Zoom call with. Um, but, but, you know, when you look at the What's the number now? $160 billion in DAFs. This is why I have kind of a contrarian opinion on this. A lot of people say, well, those are people who just, they just want to get the tax benefit and then they just want to, you know, they don't want to give to anything. They just want to take the tax benefit and, and, and let it go. And I don't believe that's the case. And, and this is because I had a DAF because my mom, my, my daughter's friend's dad happened to be on a DAF board and told me about it. Otherwise, I would have had no idea what it was. 
And, and so I believe that a whole lot of those people are people who have had a single, have had no good, no interaction or no positive interaction with a fundraiser and, and, or are just intimidated by it. And so it's easier to put the money in a donor advice fund and say, maybe later I'll figure this out because I kind of might've done the same thing. Uh, it's, 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 um, it's not for lack. I believe that most of those people are not saying they don't want to give. I think they're saying it's too hard. Um, it feels too awful. It's too off-putting. It makes me get in the middle of my workday and go have be required to answer a telephone call, set up a two-hour lunch with somebody, have them pander to me over a table, have them do something that most people are shocked they did this, where at the end of a lovely lunch where I think I'm getting to know somebody because it seems logical to me, you would want to get to know the person, get to know each other. And at the end of the lunch, I, no one asked me for money. I'm really excited. I go to sit up. I paid the bill and somebody leans over the table and pushes my shoulders down and says, now I need to ask you about, you know, a donation. Someone I, literally touched you and pushed your shoulders yeah, down. It's happened at least twice. Yeah. And it's really, I had one guy, I had an event at our house and I spent, I spent a lot of money on events. We've had over 200 events at our home. We just had, had one yesterday. Now we're starting to do them again. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and I spend usually a thousand, $1,500. Plus I have a mailing list I've curated over many years of people who will come and, and, and either give or know somebody who will give. And we have an event and we, you know, have really nice hors d'oeuvres and food and wine and that whole thing. And, and I have this one thing happen and it's, it's happened. This one was the worst, but and then afterwards, the guy says, can I have some of your scotch? And it was, you know, we was at a bar and we weren't serving scotch, but whatever. I said, OK, fine. It was the end of the thing. And he wouldn't leave. And he told us he wouldn't leave until we gave him a check. And I, I just couldn't believe it. And so what did you what did you do? I don't think I gave it to him. I got upset and I'm still upset. I, it's been several years. And now when of I ever see his name, I get upset. But I did have I have had other people who weren't they were like, well, you know, what is your contribution? And I was like, I just gave you an event with 50 people that I just spent all this money out of my pocket on. Isn't that, don't you see that as a contribution? And this is sort of that narrow-mindedness in the sector that I, I don't know if it's old school or narrow-mindedness or both, but it's this idea of if I don't get, quote, a check, which is silly because a lot of this isn't checks anymore, but if I don't get a check from you, then I haven't done my job. And I realized that, so, so despite me saying, wait a minute, I can exponentially help you. It's going to be more than me giving you a check because I'm going to have an event with all these other people. And that's going to expand the area, the, the numbers of people that know about you and that think that you do great stuff. But I can't tell you how many people don't see it that way. They see it as I, I think now I, it just occurred to me that I think a lot of them say, yeah, Lisa likes to have these events and invite these other people over. But and um, and if you, you know, if you do a good job, uh, she'll give you a check. And but she's not going to give you a check if you don't. Uh, and by the way, I don't. But, anyway. but this is not all you do. I mean, for those who are listening for the first time, haven't read your work, don't know your life story, which is why I started by talking about your childhood with you, um, yeah. that that you don't just hold events. So if that's a perception, that's that's a misperception, too. A lot of what you talk about in the book and you're sharing a little bit of that now is the way people make these massive assumptions about other people, mm -hmm. which is so awful in life in general. But it's also potentially very damaging to this work that we all do. Um, and I know that you're introducing that a bit, but 
can maybe would you mind going back? I know you've told the story before, but going back to that first instance, I mean, you you described this almost like going from clipping coupons to suddenly, you know, being in a position where you decided, well, then we'll give. And that was new for you. Yes. And then you had your first events. I think Hillcrest is one you talk about here. Can you revisit that so people have a picture of how how yeah. off putting this can be? Yeah. So I was. Um, uh, yeah, so there's two stories that I, I want to tell that are sure. both shocking. But so, uh, so I was uh, going to be, um, I was involved in uh, actually the donor advice fund I mentioned earlier. I was invited to have a donor advice fund. I was then because they knew I found out I had money, I was then asked to be on the board. Um, so for six years, I was on the board of our community foundation uh, and uh, the, that uh, that that has a large billion dollar ish donor advice fund pool. Okay, and uh, so. But my rabbi said to me, uh, you know, you need to give to the Jewish Federation. If you're involved in the Jewish community, you need to. And my kids were in Jewish nursery school, I think, at that point, the little ones. And I said, oh, OK. And I think I might have been on the board in a marketing position or something at, uh, at that point. And so uh, so she said, if you want to if you want to play the game in, in, in Los Angeles, if you want to be part of. You know, knowing the right people or really, you know, getting being whatever, being known as an actual member of this community, you need to give them a decent size contribution. So I said, okay. So I, I believe that. And so I gave them a, and I'm going to tell real numbers this one. I don't know if I do this in the book, but um, so I thought, I don't know how much to give based on like what I talked about before. I just didn't know what was right. But I, I, I thought, okay, I looked at the different levels and I said, all right, I'm going to do $25,000. So, which was a lot of money, but I gave a $25,000 contribution. And, uh, and I thought, okay, you know, that, that, uh, surely that's enough that, 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 you know, I'm done. And so that was in November. So two months later, uh, I was actually, it was February. So yeah. Um, so almost three months later, well, since then, right after we, we, we found that we had money, my husband had been uh, wanting to golf forever. He was always working too hard. He'd golf on the weekends and he wanted to join a country club. So we uh, decided that we wanted to, um, we ended up joining Hillcrest Country Club, and uh, which was something I thought I'd never do in my whole life. Because again, I thought other people did that, but it was, it's turned out to be great. But at Hillcrest, they were hosting this, the Jewish Federation's annual event, which they've done since like 1920. Um, so it's, it's a regular thing. It's the only charity event that they host. And so I, Josh and I, of course, went to the event. And again, just remember, I've given them $25,000 in November and I, uh, and I'm really, really new to this. So we, they said, well, you know, normally the Federation event is either a women's, it's either a women's day and a men's day. And I'm, I'm not one of those people who believes in that segregation stuff. I thought that was very weird, but this particular year, they said, we're going to do it all together. And I thought, great, I can sit next to my husband. This is wonderful. So we go to the event and, and, and I asked earlier, I said, you know, gosh, I don't know if I'll know anybody who's at my table. So I asked one of my, somebody who from the board or whatever, and they said, oh, actually you're sitting at one of the front tables next to the man who uh, is the, is the head of the Jewish community foundation. And I thought, oh my God, that's like so exciting. I've, you know, I, I've just gotten, I've seen the guy across the room, but I, that's really, I must be, that must be what they do for new donors, I guess. And so we had the event and, uh, and the event was lovely. There was great entertainment. It was wonderful. And all of a sudden there's this, it gets quiet. And then the sky stands up at our table. Evidently he was like the table monitor, whatever. And he, I, I, I was looking around and all of a sudden there's this thing in front of me, this like 
vinyl folio that looks like from an old school restaurant. And it's sitting in front of me. And there's another one in front of Josh. And I thought, hmm, okay, so I guess they're going to ask me for something that looked like money because it looked like where you pay your bill at a restaurant at some money thing. And they open it and he says, now it's time to open it up. We're all going to open up at the same time. And he opens it up and he says, now here, and it was this, this like old kind of like, like, I don't even know how to describe it. Was it almost hand typed kind of machine uh, like you would do in, I don't know, an old school audit or something like that. It said $25,000 at the top. It had various lines on it. And it said, uh, whatever the year was, contribution, which was the previous year. And it had said 25,000. That's all it said. It had my name at the top. Josh had one that had his name at the top. They were separate. They'd separated us now. And his also said $25,000. And the man looked at, looked at me and I said, I don't, I've already given. And he said, oh no, that was last year. And you need to give a larger amount. So here's your pen, gave me a pen. And he stood over my shoulder and he said, you need to write in a larger amount. And I, I, I didn't, I really, I thought I was, as many times, this happens to me a lot since we've had money, I thought I was in an alien world. I didn't know. I just had been transported to some crazy person place. I had no idea, like, how could that be? And I said, but I gave to you. Nope, nope, that was last year. You, you need to do this. And I didn't know what to do. Josh didn't know what to do. Um, it was awful. And uh, I think I didn't write anything. And I said, can we talk about it later or something like that? And somehow got through the dinner and thought, I don't know. What I don't I don't know what just happened and why and I I, I still so so I keep thinking if I hadn't been such a glutton for punishment and actually curious about this whole thing I might have stopped at that point and just put the money in a donor advice fund and said I'm going on with my life I can't deal with this and I think that happens every day and I think that probably every hour maybe every minute of a day somebody goes through some version of that and says i don't i can't be part of this this is an alien world this right. is not this there's no connection between what happened in that moment and impact or doing good in the world i saw no connection i still don't now i i i know it's hard to read people's minds and hearts <laughs> but what do you imagine was in their minds when they thought they could just present an invoice to you that I would just pay it because I'm in a country club. I'm, you know, Jewish and, 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 and that I would just do it. Oh, I'm certain they did that. I, I am, I am, I'm, I, 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 like you said it before, it was an assumption. There's an assumption that if you have money and somebody is over your shoulder saying, give more, you will just do it. And I do believe that in the, in the Jewish community specifically, there is a whole lot of guilt involved in giving. And there has been that guilt involved in giving because a long time ago, you know, whatever, three generations ago, two generations ago, there was a lot of Holocaust guilt and we have to come together and we've got to help people. And, and that's what we do. And so people, uh, people gave, I think, for maybe a, a slightly different reason. It was, it was a reason about because of a, of a point in time. And that continued um, through that generation and the next generation. Now, this generation is saying, wait a minute, that, you know, guilt of the Holocaust, I I had nothing to do with that. That was two generations before me. Um, You know, yes, I study it. Yes, it's important to know, but but there's not a correlation between that and you have to give money. And so I believe that, that, that at least in the Jewish community, that people, that the old school people gave money out of guilt. I think that is why a lot of it happened. And that is not a piece of what's happening today. And and you've talked about this with other organizations too, also making massive assumptions. I mean, down to putting hands on your shoulders, which still gives me chills. But um, when you talked about the Cedars-Sinai experience in the book, I know it's different, but uh, it sounds like maybe there was a different set of assumptions. Uh, and I've heard this many times 
in the fundraising world too, that, oh, there's this person who wants to support us. Well, who is this really? And a lot of assumptions. So can you talk a bit about that and, and, the, and what you deduced from that experience, the kind of assumptions people yeah, make? Yeah, what I deduced is that I wasn't on the list. Uh, so yes, it is a different thing. And I call it the list. And the list is the, 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 the regulars, the people who everybody knows of people who have money and the wealth engine stuff says this person has money because they gave to a political campaign or something crazy. Whatever it is, I, I think the criteria that we use for determining who has money and who doesn't is so outdated that it just drives me absolutely crazy. And in our case, we had had uh, we, we had came from from, you know, I don't want to say modest means, but I would say, you know, middle of the road means both my husband and I, we'd always worked. We always were kind of paycheck to paycheck. And that's what we did. And so all of a sudden we show up and nobody noticed. And I'm not saying I wanted to be noticed, but but it, 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 it that noticed part means that they actually thought we were frauds. So because and that I think happened in the Cedar sinai example is that is that. If you you say, I, I want to give money, I, I can't tell you how many times I've given an unsolicited gift and people call me and say, who the heck are you? Like they don't I'm not I'm not. We weren't a regular name. We weren't on those lists. And by the way, I did my own wealth engine um, check about a, six months ago, a year ago, and it was completely wrong. It would have never it, it had nothing to do with me. It was. Well, and I should let you know that since uh, donor searches, this bonds are here. We'll have to fix that because I think they do yes. a better job. But I mean, but, but your point, your, your point about uh, using a service to uh, summarize a person's life in terms of financials, yes. no matter how good or bad it may be. That's only one tiny way of looking at a person. And it's that, but it's also doesn't give way to the people who are becoming, you know, this, this, sure. this multi-trillion dollar, well, I forgot what the amount is of the great wealth transfer, $68 trillion right. that's, that's moving over. You know, how long is that going to take till somebody realizes these people have money? And I hear stories. I heard a story last night at this event that we had about uh, some somebody who, who really was trying to give money and couldn't do it. In my case, for, for your listeners who haven't read the book, maybe it took seven months for Cedar sinai to accept $2 million for me because they, from us, because they didn't accept, they didn't believe that we really had the money and that we were for real because we weren't on those lists. And so the way that I see it being done today with, with, with most fundraising is that you, you have your lists and you go by the list and you go by and somebody puts together this list. And so I really believe that that is arcane. Uh, I think there's there's a piece of that that you might want to save, but most of it you might want to change because there's a whole lot of people out there like me and a whole lot of people who have way more money than me. And there's new ones being minted every single day and they're not showing up anywhere. So it, that is a scandal, I think, for the fundraising community and, and, and a really uh, just a, just an awful piece of it that most fundraisers, because of especially in large organizations and, you know, they're given their cards and their names and whatever. But but most of them, I don't even know if they have the agency to say to the senior people, I want to go outside and find these other people. That's mm -hmm. a lot of times that's not their job. Uh, their job is to continue with the people who are on the, who are the regulars, who are the people on the list. But what that does is it it means I believe that if you have one interaction, any one of the ones I've just mentioned, that's a negative interaction, and you're just starting out uh, being a give, being a, being a donor, that that all, it just takes one interaction for you to say, I don't want to be part of this. And then it's just, chilling. It must be chilling. Uh, and, and you talk about this actually in the book. You there are, there are several things. You mentioned them a little bit here. One is about these archetypes. You know, assuming that people are a certain way because of 
the assumptions we make about their wealth. Another one is about gender, which you talked about earlier. And um, and then there's another one which has to do with people's uh you know, age and assumptions people make. And we hear this in all of our marketing literature, right? About millennials and Gen Z's and Gen Y and, and people make all these assumptions about people based on a birth date. And, I, and I, I know you could talk about that all day too, but I do want to ask you when you think about those things, um, you, you also have extensive experience personally in business dealing with marketing. And so you, you this whole idea about archetypes and personas and breaking people down by demographics is something that people do when they talk broadly, like in media, if we're yeah. at, a, at a cable station or something like that, or a major exactly. producer. But, but this is different. You, you, here's, a, here's an organization that's talking to you, perhaps you and your husband, about something that in theory means something to you. And they're still talking to you like you're, I don't know, uh, a certain persona, like they've made up. Uh, that's right. That's right. How do you get past that? Yeah, it's it's very um, well. It's it's hard to get past it. I, I just you know, in in the reason I wrote, wrote my book and the work that I do all day long now is because um, I, I I I can't get past it without making change. And so I'm trying very very hard to to bring this message to people so they realize that there's a huge amount of money being left on the table and a huge number of people who aren't going to think positively about giving because as much as they want to, it's just too hard. And, uh, you know, one of those examples is um, uh, where, where somebody, uh, there's a story in the book about this, this 20 something year old woman who was part of something called resource generation and uh, which, which my older kids are involved in. And it's, uh, it's, it's literally huge numbers, large numbers of people who have in most cases, a million dollars or more who are between the ages of, 21 and 35. Most fundraisers I've talked to have no idea that this organization exists and it's, it's existed for at least a decade, if not more. So that already is strange. And then when I tell people about it, they say, oh, that's interesting. But then, oh, well, we don't have time. We have to focus on, you know, what I call it, you know, the, the, the usual suspects, meaning those in many cases, I, I call it sort of the 10 old white guys who've basically been funding these organizations and these institutions for years. And, and they don't realize that, that that is easier. It might be easier to go to those guys and ask for a little bit more money, but you are then knocking out. You're, you're, that's like kicking a can down the road and realizing that, that the ax is going to fall really soon because as soon as those guys are gone, all these younger people are going to say, wait a minute, you treated me like crap before. So why am I going to join your party? And, and so that's weird. But I, I do think that, well, the one story from the book is that this, this girl from Research Generation goes to a... Uh, she works at was it Facebook or Google? She goes to a uh, nonprofit fair. It's like a job fair, and she goes into this big room and you know, like a job fair with there's different booths and there's different people. And she's done her research before, uh, before to see who was there and who she was interested in. She finds an organization that she does she studies, and she, this is and this is a millennial type person, possibly Gen Z. But I think it's millennial, and she finds an organization she's interested in, and she happens to be. Not only does she is she wealthy because of her Google or Facebook, whatever it is, stuff, but she's also independently wealthy. I mean, from her family, she has family wealth. And she goes up to this woman at this booth and she says, I've done some research. And she introduces herself and she said, I'd like very much to talk to you or whoever the right person is about joining your board. And the woman looked at her and said, how could you at your age possibly have anything that you could contribute to our board of directors? And we're doing that stuff often. And that's awful. It's 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 shooting ourselves in the foot. And, and not just at that one individual organization or with that one donor, although that's profound already. 
because I'm sure that even with all the confidence and all the resources she has, that hurts. Yeah. She's a person. But but beyond that, it hurts the sector. And I know you talk about that also. You kind of bring us into these great examples from your life and, and from others. But then you talk about this writ large. What's the potential impact in the sector? And you highlight two things which I find really fascinating. One is the the problem we have with what fundraisers call donor retention, really keeping our friends in, in our, you know, close to us. And the other is about a donor acquisition, or in other words, um, being able to welcome new people who care about the same things we do. And, and the reason why I'm redefining that even in our audience is because I think sometimes when we use these terms, we use them for efficiency. But what inadvertently happens is we start talking about people like they're not people anymore. But the, anyway, friends and, and friends, you know, new friends, old friends, all of, all of whom are friends. But if we keep treating people that way, we potentially hurt the sector as a whole. That's and right. so we're, we're doing that every day and every person, every miss, every bad, every time somebody insists on a telephone call with a 30 year old who works at Facebook, they don't use the telephone. If anybody, I'm sure people listening have kids are millennials. It's not something they do and say, we need you that you ha- we have to meet you in person for you to give. That's it's just it's going to be like a it's like a it's like a it's like a computer old school like a computer like in a cartoon saying does not compute does not compute and they're just going to say I'm out of here I'm just I'm not going to have these conversations right. anymore right. I can give the money to my cat I can give it to whatever <laughs> it is, right? and and so what I really think is that this is this assumption thing is honestly shooting ourselves in the foot in terms of growth of the sector in terms of retention of people in terms of making sure that there is a constant flow of new donors coming in. And, and then to have this thing where you tell a donor who doesn't know the rules, like I didn't, all of a sudden that they are expected to be an annual donor. Nobody tells us that. We didn't know that. And I didn't sign up for that. So when somebody comes to me and just assumes, well, you know, it's next year, um, you know, could you increase? Your, that's what they say. Could you increase your gift this year? And I think I didn't say I was going to give you a gift this year. Why are you asking me to increase my gift? We never had that conversation. Um, or people who assume that I like to be thanked you know, with big giant, you know, brouhaha, brouhaha thing. And I don't need that. Or they think that they have to sit down and write thank you notes. And I'm just happier. I'd rather have, uh, I've talked to this with a lot of people in the industry, but I would rather somebody just says thank you in a quick email the next day or the day after that, than that I wait a month for a pretty letter. I, I just, that's, that's, that's me. Other people are going to have different preferences, but I really do feel you, you really hit something when you said that they, uh, the people feel like they're, they're really inanimate objects. And I kind of feel like as a donor that, and and none of this is just me, all of this stuff I've checked out with lots and lots of other, um, other, other uh, donors and people have all had these same situations happen, but I really do feel like fundraisers would prefer that a donor is a piggy bank. And maybe those piggy banks have different colors based on their age group. But whatever that is, the piggy bank, they would prefer to work with a piggy bank because a piggy bank is filled with money and it's an inanimate object. It won't talk back. And you just and and it is what it is. There's no assumptions to be had. And you can smash the piggy bank and run with your money. The end. And gosh, nobody wants to feel that way. And everybody, in my opinion, is a donor or has been a donor at some point, regardless of your means. Nobody wants to feel that way. I um. When, when you talk about these things, what really hits me is that it's uh, it's like it must be born out of something like fear or discomfort with money itself, 
because most people, well, and you talk about this in the book as well. Most people who have some means, however we want to define that today, didn't always have them. There's there's some inherited wealth, but that's always a small fraction of the you know high net worth individual, whatever we want to call that cohort. Um, most people, uh, through luck, intelligence, you know, hard work, some combination of things, make their money, and that that's uh, so they're learning how to contend with that in the same way you've been describing for us. Um, I wonder if maybe the lack of that experience at many of these nonprofits is also causing them to make a lot of assumptions, which are unintentionally harming their ability to welcome new friends in and fund all these missions. Yep. How do we get them to be more comfortable too? How do we help both donors and, and organizations to start getting comfortable with talking about money? Yeah, so, uh, and that is an issue. And uh, in fact, I was astonished when I found a stat that 83% or 85% of fundraisers are uncomfortable, some level of, have some level of discomfort about asking a donor or even mentioning operational costs and overhead. And I thought, like, I, I don't understand that. Like, why are they uncomfortable about that? They know that, do they, do, do they assume that the person on the other side of the table really thinks, really wants them to work for free, wants them to be starving? And in this, especially in this world when everyone's talking living wage, no, they don't. I mean, I don't, and, and I, I was, I'm also astonished that many, many don't, uh, uh, fundraisers who I've spoken to in the last year or two um, have told me that they don't feel comfortable talking about themselves with the donor. They don't think that that's the point of the meeting. And I say to them, no, 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 no. First of all, every, again, everybody's a donor and everybody has feelings and we're all humans. And think about how you would feel when you talk to the other person and think about yourself as a donor. And then people will say to me, I'm not a donor. I don't have all this money. Yes, you are a donor. Some, at some point you have given some money for a PTA or the coat, an extra coat or whatever it is. It doesn't, the money, amount of money in this context doesn't matter. It matters that you are a donor. And so the first thing I think that breaks through to them, and this is a really big piece of what I do and what I, I, I want to do more of, is, is have them realize that they're not talking to a different breed of people, that that person is, is that we're all human beings, we all have feelings, and we've all given something at some point. And if you start with that, and then you say, whatever you say, you think, if someone said that to me, how would I feel? How would I react? And I, I tell people, just mirror that. Just send it back to yourself. If you're sending an email, read it as if it's coming to you and tell me if you'd open it. Tell me how you would feel. And so, but I have had people say, well, no, the donors don't care how I feel. And I think that's really, really sad. And so I say to them, and this is kind of my new methodology that I've created for this whole thing, is that is that really... As a donor, I want to hear, I don't want to know that you're the 18-month person going through nonprofits one at a time just to gather, grab some money, make some calls, and go on to the next one. I want to know that you have an absolute authentic passion for what you do, that you think this is really important work, and why, and why are you working in the nonprofit space? And once I hear that, most of the time, I'm going to offer you money. You don't even have to ask me because that passion is so important. But but I was astonished when, when I talked to several people recently who said, I don't think it's appropriate for me to talk about myself. The donor doesn't want to know. And I said, no, no, no. This is about a relationship. You can't have a relationship if, if you're not part of it. I, it doesn't, that's not a relationship. That's just using a word. And so it is a transaction. If you just say, this is what I have to sell, please buy it. And that's not what people want. People want to know, I will, I and most donors 
and I, and I saw it last night at this event we had at our home. Most donors are going to be energized and interested based on the passion of the person they're speaking to. So whoever in the world of teaching fundraising told fundraisers, no, the other person only wants to hear about them. They don't they want to be pandered to. They don't care about you. They're wrong. And I'm just going to stand up and say that they are absolutely wrong because this is just it's it's just not human nature. It's, it's contrary to human nature. You're doing a lot of teaching on this now, really, in lots of different ways. You talk to several nonprofits a day. You've got the book. You'll be doing other things, probably more books, I hope. Um, I'm curious to know uh, about your own kids' experience with this, because they've watched probably your own family go from the clipping coupon stage to deciding to take this action on behalf of philanthropy in your own way, on your own terms. They've also seen, I'm sure, some good experiences, but a lot of People behaving very badly, fundraisers yeah. behaving badly. So how do they, what have they taken from this? Do they talk with you about it? What is their view of all this? Yeah, I, I don't thank you for that question. I, I don't share the bad experiences with them unless they've read my book. So uh, I really don't. I don't want them to have to even, I guess I'm being a little protective, but uh, I, I don't, I don't want them to have to have, feel like I did when some of those horrible things happened to me. I just don't. But they do. They do know that I've had all these events. They've been raised with that happening while they've been asleep or seeing people here. They understand that I do it because I think it's important and because I want to help those organizations. They understand that. Um, they all have different opinions and uh, relationships with money, depending on what their age is and if we had money when they were young or not. So, so that's been interesting, but I can say now, and I did open donor advice funds for all of them, including my little ones when they were five, and they do understand that. And, but at the beginning, the older ones were really like, my son was running a nonprofit uh, and he felt uncomfortable about using his donor advice fund to give a gift to the nonprofit that he was running, he was co-founder of. And I didn't understand that. I thought that was very strange. And I think he thought of it as that's my parents' money or something, but I funded it. It was his, it was in his account. The little ones, which I was really surprised about, they had a fun run at school and they said to me, do you, you know, they're giving, and there's had different motivations, but they're giving, a, I think it was a pizza party or an ice cream party to the class that, that, that raises the most money. Do you think I can use my donor advice fund to make a donation for that so that I can do that? I'm like, great connection. You're five years old. Great. Let's do that. And they did that. So I, um, my, my son, and this is a blog post that I wrote, actually found an organization um, that he was, he's very into uh, 3D printing and computing. And he does this, this uh, distributed computing thing that, and he found out that it was a nonprofit connected to it. And they, uh, they were looking for funding and, but he had nothing to do with the organization other than the work that they were doing. He was doing a lot of the work on the computing work. And he said, can I give them a gift? And, um, and, and from my donor advice fund, that was the coolest thing ever. And then he developed a relationship with the guy who ran it and he feels great about it. So lots of good things have happened, but I can say that it's evolved. My older kids were very, I think they felt like this was a pretentious thing being a donor in quotes, mm. um, but they, but they, they've gotten used to that. And I'm really proud to say that all of my older children now who are working, they all work for nonprofits now. And uh, all different types. And it's really, um, I, I actually just realized that as we're talking, but yes, all three of them are. And it's, um, and that's after going through all different other kinds of things and thinking what they want to do. My oldest daughter is 37 years old and uh, they just um, have fallen into that. So I'm going to pat myself on the back and say, I guess we did something right. 
The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.